Hi there, this is Kent Roundy, and in a twist, we're going to change roles. So, let's start over. Hi, my name is Tim Light. I am a fourth-year medical student at Rocky Vista University, and today I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Roundy and Corey Camp. You guys want to introduce yourselves? Uh, my name is Corey Camp. I'm the administrative director here on the Northeast Unit here at the State Hospital. Great. He's also a... a licensed clinical social worker and uh, I think we'll be describing what that role is a little bit in more detail later right I'm Ken Roundy I'm a psychiatrist at the Utah State Hospital I've been here about 15 years now I've worked with I'm guessing somewhere around 400 Rocky Vista University students at this point maybe more 400 maybe more Wow my own students is probably less than 400 all students combined might be pushing 500 Wow true veteran. I've, I've, I've seen them all. No, I haven't. So every student's different. Can, um, thanks for introducing yourselves. Can each of you maybe talk through your role at the state hospital a little bit? So my role here on the Northeast Unit, so probably the main thing that I'm over is a lot of the programming. So I work with the, the clinical therapists, so the social workers, on helping them you know, implement treatment plans, uh, what stuff just happens um, on the unit, and then I also work with the rec therapists on the unit. And so just kind of oversee, like I said, the, the programming, making sure that individual therapy is happening, patients are going to groups, that kind of stuff. Okay. So do you ever do therapy yourself? On occasion. Um, I don't carry a, a caseload uh Typically, but a lot of times there's one or two patients that I'll work with. Okay. And today we're going, going to be talking about, you know, like the, the process. How does somebody go from being a community member to being a patient in the state hospital? And then the flip side, how does somebody go from being a patient at the state hospital to becoming a community member again? So do you also handle administrative logistics around that uh, in your role? Yeah, so Dr. Roundy and I kind of tag team that a little bit. So I work a lot with the liaisons in helping patients like set up uh, appointments and different thing and helping with that transition mm -hmm. back out um, into the community. So um, yeah, definitely one of my roles. Okay. Cool. Who are the liaisons? We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Let's, <laughs> okay. let's talk about Dr. Roundy's role and then we'll get into the so I, uh, my role here is um, to stay out of trouble <laughs> most of the time. Do you achieve that, Dr. Ryan? Uh With Corey's help, actually. <laughs> Corey didn't mention this, but in addition to being, a, I, I'll toot his horn just a little bit, an incredibly gifted therapist. He's an amazing administrator, and periodically both he and Mike Tucker, who is one of the other administrators on the unit, have to say, okay, uh, doc, <laughs> before we go in there, let us talk. <laughs> and that's usually a good idea. Sometimes, well, not, not always, but sometimes that's a good idea. Um, so my role here, more specifically, or more defined, is to try and treat the patients who have whatever illness brings them in. So I'm prescribing the medications. But I, I think the role is probably beyond that on, on some level. Most of the physicians here at the Utah State Hospital have the ability to make the unit um, the, the place they want it to be. So, so I have this incredible ability here at the State Hospital to 
have a, a pressure on the direction that we go, whether that is um, seeing if I can uh, talk Corey into using certain kinds of therapies on the unit or having somebody trained that way. And, and I think usually it's not talk Corey into it. It's like we talk about pros and cons of stuff and, and try to come to reasonable conclusions about what can we do better with, with the data that we have in front of us, with the tools and the options that we have at our disposal. How do we best treat the patients, right? So, so in addition to being the person that's prescribing medications on the unit, I see my role as trying to have some sort of um, vision for the unit maybe and how that vision plays out and what kind of place we are for healing. For example, um, there are ways to have a unit be more restrictive. There are ways to have a unit be less restrictive. And I think we're always trying to figure out with the mix of patients we have, what's the best possible way to run the unit so that everybody has the best chance of getting well. And, and, and we've changed how we manage the unit at times and, and sometimes that's gone well, sometimes it hasn't. Um, but I, I think that's probably the best description of what I do. And then there are a million small jobs that both Corey and I have. Um, that, that interaction with the liaisons is a part of what we do, a big part. We have interactions with pharmacies. We have interactions with nursing staff that's here at night. We have interactions with security. For example, if we have a family that needs some sort of accommodation for what they drive, we're going to call security and try and sort that out. Right? We, we interact with all, both of us interact in tag teaming a lot with a lot of different parts of the hospital. I don't think I've ever been to the warehouse, for example, and I think Corey was there this morning making sure that we have enough Pedialyte, right? So we're both always doing different things to try and just make sure the unit can function and function well and that patients can get well and recover and go home. Amazing, okay. So both of you have said liaisons a couple times. Talk to me simply about the different players involved in the admission process to the state hospital? So, uh, as you mentioned, liaison. So liaison, obviously, is somebody that uh, is kind of a middle person. Yeah. So all patients, and if I'm going in the wrong direction, stop me. But So all the patients that come to the state hospital are attached to a mental health center in the state. So I always, when I describe it to people, like, they're not like really our patients. They're and owned is probably not the right word either, but they're attached to these different mental health centers. So for example, here in Provo, so say somebody were to get picked up by police, they feel um, like they need to be hospitalized. They can't just bring them to the state hospital. Um, you hear the term like pink sheet Mm -hmm. um, like a police officer can't pink sheet somebody here to the state hospital. So um, a liaison's role within the mental health center, so as I mentioned, if somebody gets picked up here in Provo, uh, they have to be on what they call a civil commitment. So a judge has to sign off, um, in a sense, on them kind of being here at the state hospital. And what that civil commitment looks like is there's kind of three main criteria. They have to have some type of a mental health diagnosis. Uh, they have to, they can't be managed in a less restrictive environment than a civil commitment. And then they have to uh, be like a danger to themselves or to others. So if those three criteria are met and they go before a judge and the judge feels like those criteria met, they're what they call like civilly committed. So the liaison's role, like here in Provo, 
It's with what they call Wasatch Behavioral Health. Say they have a bed here at the state hospital. That liaison would coordinate with our admissions department here at the hospital, and they would bring the patient um, into the hospital. So great. So to, you, oh. to clarify, so someone's journey looks like they are a community member. They have severe mental illness. Maybe they go to an emergency department or somewhere else. Somehow they end up at the community health center. Is that what they're called? Where the liaisons work? Community health centers that? are a little bit different. The community health centers are usually medical, and, and there's not as much overlap between the community health centers and the, the county mental health system. That's what I mean. The count, yeah. So they end up at the county mental health system. Each county mental health system has a set number of beds allocated to them at the state hospital. And so when they have somebody that they feel is above, uh, that they can't meet the needs of their care for whatever reason, and it may be a more serious required to go to the state hospital, then they can fill one of their allocated beds. That's, a, that's a great description. I would also add just a little bit of background. So we've talked about deinstitutionalization in previous podcasts. Yeah. Uh, Thorazine came along. Uh, these were the French surgeons that developed that for psychiatry. Thank goodness for surgeons, right? You're going into surg surgery and hopefully surgery specialty of mm -hmm. uh, plastic surgery. And uh, so with the reduction in psychosis, people left the state hospitals, and yet when they went out, it was very difficult to maintain treatment, maintain enough wellness to be in the community. So the county mental health system was stood up to help um, people return to the community. In the state of Utah, I think at the moment there are either 13 or 14 mental health agencies, mm -hmm. even though we have many more counties than that. And the reason why is because you may have four or five counties that are involved that that have come together to form one mental health agency so when washington county Penguin county kane county iron county and beaver county uh, when their populations were much smaller uh, before the boom in uh, washington county for example they they needed um, due to the economy of scale to build one service center at least that's kind of the way i imagine it. I don't know that I've ever heard anybody say exactly that, but I think that's how the county groups came together. That's interesting because some of those counties, even the ones you listed off, those are large geographic areas, and so I would imagine that also presents some barriers to some patients, you know, in terms of getting to a health, you know, mental so health center and stuff. Maybe. Um, my experience was that Whenever somebody has a mental illness that's very disruptive, um, when it gets to the point that it's disrupting the community, you'll make it here. The distance from a population center doesn't seem to make a huge difference in that. And, and remember, Utah is a very urban state. Nobody thinks about Utah as an urban state. But most of our population lives in urban areas. The vast majority, I think only Nevada is a more urban state, which is, again, paradoxical because we have all of these large, expansive areas where nobody lives, right? Yeah. They're, they're unpopulated areas. And so, um, at least in Utah, my, my experience when I was in the county mental health system was you can have somebody that's going outside their house screaming at the voices all the time, but if they only have a couple of neighbors and those neighbors don't really care, and you live in a, in a less densely populated area, 
and everybody just knows, oh, that's Joe. He's just yelling at the voices, or he's got a problem, and he doesn't hurt anybody. Yeah. It, it might not make it to the state hospital. I think the key is the amount of disruption that a person's mental health brings to the community that leads to their placement here. Okay, kind of strange. We're we're trying to work something out here. We had a phone call that came in. You might be hearing it. Hopefully it stops now. <laughs> I, I think we were talking about how really the the illness severity, the disruption to society determines who comes in, maybe as much as anything. Having said that though, the county mental health system and the state hospitals are built largely for schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder and bipolar disorder with psychotic features, um, maybe even without psychotic features. And, and those were the illnesses that brought people to state hospitals largely in the past, right? Mm -hmm. And so they're kind of built around that. Um, that's, I would say, not exactly what the role is now it, it does really get back to the amount of disruption, and so that really opens up the doors for a lot of different kinds of conditions to come in. I see. So county mental health centers, those are outpatient then? Correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they, they have contracts with regional hospitals. So let, let's say that somebody uh, has a first episode of psychosis. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe a son of a family is no longer coming down to eat. They're staying in their room. They've darkened the windows. This is actually surprisingly common. I don't know why. And then the family goes and says, hey, we need some help. And quite often it's hard to get help because well, how's this person hurting you or hurting anybody else or hurting themselves? And the answer is, well, they're not. But look, this isn't right. Can't you help me, right? And then eventually something happens where the person is can be forced to be hospitalized. And so that person might go to a regional hospital like, uh, uh, it's not Dixie Regional anymore, what is it, St. George Regional? B-Med? To the behavioral medicine no. units yeah. at St. George Regional or Utah Valley Regional Hospital or uh, Uni, mm -hmm. I think is now Huntsman something or another, right? I think okay. that the names have changed for a couple of hospitals lately. Uh, LDS Hospital has a, a robust psychiatric unit, McKD does. Um, so they might be able to finally get that person in there. Now let's suppose that person has been in there for an extended period of time and simply are not recovering, right? And then they might say, hey, this is going to take more time than we have for a, an acute state unit. Let's get that person into a state hospital. Or they might have that person get well enough to leave, but that person then immediately decompensates. They try hospitalization again, that person immediately decompensates. And then the county mental health system says, hey, this is not working to try this acute state. Let's see if a, a, a more, um, it's not detailed. I'm not exactly sure how to say this. Uh, a system built for more of a schizophrenia rehab with locked doors is able to address this. So then somebody would get sent here and we would tackle it. Yeah. It, it, the state hospital to me seems like a specialty hospital for the most severe mental illnesses. Whereas the acute hospital, you know, behavioral units on at a, you know, like McKady or something, those are built to handle acute episodes of all mental illness that become severe. So... <clears throat> I think that's a pretty good description. Yeah. Dis and people and the state hospital is created so that people can stay here, they live here inpatient, 
and have complete focused care, you know, twenty four seven really. Yeah, all of all of our interactions then, or or the majority, so many are about what can I, what can my interaction be that might help the patient be able to better better manage their mental health when they leave, mm-hmm. and when when I walk on the unit, for example, I have maybe 15 or 20 different interactions with patients trying to keep track of their care, uh, see if there's something that I need to take care of immediately, which might be a medication change, something that's a long-term goal. Hey, how are you doing with your thought records so that you can manage the voices, uh, the CBTP approach, right? And so so it's, it really is all about um, trying to address the illness that was so chaotic in the community, whether through self-harm or disruption of society itself, uh, self-injury, right, or... or disruption with other people's lives that they ended up here. Yeah. So a common question that a community member might ask is, can somebody check themselves into the state hospital? So I talked a little bit about that earlier. So that's where the civil commitment piece uh, comes into play that, yeah, somebody can't just, it's not like our regional hospitals. You know, if you're having uh, a family member having symptoms or whatever, and you feel like you need to take them to the ER, you couldn't that's different than coming to the to the state hospital. So they do have to be on that civil commitment, as I mentioned earlier, which means they're attached to one of the local mental health centers, and then a judge needs to you know sign off on that. And then if that local mental health center does have a bed available here at the hospital, then they could yeah come here. So and definitely we talked about this a minute ago. Definitely more long term mm-hmm. here, as as opposed to kind of that acute. Mm-hmm. In the, so it, then, it, I want to add a caveat to that, <clears throat> if I may. You, you, we get in trouble if we talk about time here as opposed to need here. I see. We have an ability to extend the time somebody is treated to address the need, but it is not a, a time thing, right? If somebody right. says, hey, they just need more time, that doesn't fly. That's true. Yeah, because that's one thing is, is a lot of our, majority of our patients will have that civil commitment reviewed while they're here at the state hospital. So a judge is checking on that, that we're not just housing people here. Because mm-hmm. our, our goal definitely is to get them back out into the community. Okay, that makes sense. So then how does forensic versus civil admission differ? There are units at the state hospital that are forensic units and then there are civil units. How do those admissions differ? So we get confused a lot. So. Currently, Dr. Rowney and I, we work here on the civil um, side of the hospital, and and it's definitely confusing, especially the public. I think the public looks at the state hospital a lot of times as a forensics um, piece, because a lot of times that's the folks you hear about on the news. Right. You hear about, you know, somebody committing some, you know, horrendous crime, and they say, oh, they're getting sent to the state hospital for uh, competency restoration. Or even evaluation. Or evaluation, yeah. yeah. So that's a big... uh, uh, difference in the two is a forensic is all about a, about competency for whether or not somebody was competent for a crime that they committed where the civil side is we're focused more on treating the mental health like people don't have to have charges to come to the civil side so if you'd add yeah that just a couple of things so so you get sent for competency evaluation and then restoration, um, and that legal process is a funnel into the forensic side. If there's no legal mandate for competency, 
but the but you have charges the county mental health might say hey this person is disruptive in society we seek a mental health commitment to place them in the civil side so at times we're addressing uh, legal charges in fact at any given time, I would say maybe a fourth to half of our patients yeah. have legal charges. It used to be pretty consistently a third, but it, it seems to have been bumping up a little bit more lately. Um, so, so you can have somebody that has legal charges be on the civil unit, but the pathway is won by a court-ordered process for the forensic side. The other one is the county mental health system um, funneling in on the civil side. What we've also seen happen more recently is that patients who have been funneled in on the forensic side, that there's been a huge influx in that over the last couple of years. And so we've seen some of those patients that have been funneled in through the courts remain ill enough that they need to come here. And so what will happen quite often is the forensics, forensic side will say, hey, this patient is still very ill and needs an involuntary commitment and further treatment, and it probably needs to happen. Uh, on the civil side. And so once that uh, forensic hold or court order is lifted, then that patient may make their way over here as well. So so the lines aren't absolute. But you will also have some patients that may be uh, a forensic unit. There, there's enough aggression or violence that a forensic unit with male-only patients might be the right place for that person. You see that happen occasionally. Um, you might also see somebody that accrues charges before and maybe move to the forensic unit because of the charges they've accrued before a civil placement. And, and those patients are sometimes moved over. Generally, that doesn't happen. It happens, uh, it varies on how that happens. Sometimes it happens if there are more beds available in forensics, but lately there have not been as many beds. So the forensic, uh, treat, uh, the forensic um, process of, of helping a patient become competent, which is an educational process in part, is picked up by outpatient therapists who then visit our unit, which is kind of interesting. So I think it's the maybe the most confusing piece is that a court is involved in admission to the state hospital regardless. Yes, but and and criminal charges lead to a forensic, forensic placement. Forensic placement, it, or or I should say, a court ordered competency evaluation yeah. is the road into the forensic building associated with legal charges for right. criminal activity. A, a mental health warrant is not a criminal uh, warrant of any sort, right? So you can have a mental health um, commitment, uh, which is, um, I think a lot of people know it as like the 5150, which is California's name for the uh, pink sheeting or blue mm -hmm. sheeting, which we, we use here in Utah. And, and uh, so those are just different processes that both use the courts. One is a criminal um, process, the other one is a societal wellness process, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And the community mental health systems recommend that somebody yeah. needs to have... Treatment here, yeah. Yeah, treatment here, it, and then they get a civil commitment from the courts, and that's the civil side. And there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of uh, variability, I think, in how counties and states work. I think there are some states where the only uh, mental health hospital is a state hospital, and so they have a lot of short stay and some longer stay patients who are having that uh, schizophrenia treatment rehabilitation, so to speak. There are other places where the, the state hospitals have become exclusively forensic um, settings, and so uh, there there's perhaps some of the homelessness that we see is because there's not a a, 
a state hospital bed for somebody that's severely mentally ill, you have to be um, charged and in the process of developing competency to be in some of those places. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult situation. Yeah, tough, really tough. Are there any common misconceptions about admission to the state hospital that you can think of? It's a good question. Um, probably. I, do you have any, Dr. Randy? I mean, I think there are a lot of <clears throat> misconceptions, right? Like, I think uh, the one flew over the cuckoo's nest kind of misconceptions are widespread. Uh, that's true. But in terms of hospitalization or admission, I think a lot of people kind of, like, I'll get calls occasionally, hey, I've got a family member who's suicidal. How do I get him into the state hospital? And I'm like, yeah, you don't. There's no way to, we don't have a receiving center that, like we have ADT, but it's all about transfers from other locations, right? There is nobody that walks up here and says, I'm getting admitted. It all has to come through either the court pathway or the mental health, the county mental health system saying, this is your pathway in. And I think a lot of people don't, don't understand the county mental health system. So I think it's, it's more about, um, I think the misconceptions are more about who's here. Criminally dangerous people, right? We have a lot of people who have yeah. charges that they've picked up along the way, mostly many because they're psychotic and just not, you know, their, their reality is impaired. And yeah. they end up uh, homeless, shoplifting to eat, those kinds, all, all sorts of pathways in here, legal charges. So you'll see a lot of legal charges here, but I think even you walking on the unit, you see there are, just like everybody else. We're gonna pause here. And we're back. I don't know how many times I've done, I think I've done a hundred and something podcasts and I've had the pager go off once before and maybe <laughs> the phone ring once before and this is kind of a record. So thanks for hanging with us here. So common misconceptions we sort of talked mm -hmm. about. Yeah, I think they're mostly about hospital overall, probably more about that. and. And not knowing that this is a fairly, uh, like a specialty hospital, sort of like what you mentioned. I see. Okay. I'd say also probably like the unknown of just what the hospital offers. I think I've had a few family members, you know, just not know. There's a lot of fear. But once they come down here and realize that we're just simply trying to help their loved ones, that's been a big misconception. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for anyone who hasn't been to the state hospital, it is a very loving, kind environment. Staff are great. The providers are great. Everyone's great. So, beautiful, you, beautiful you, campus. Beautiful campus. I, yeah. I, I tell people all the time. By the way, you now get an A. Your A is earned. Um, <laughs> I, I, I tell people that it's hard to imagine that I work in a place that a, a psychiatric state hospital that's guarded on the front end by an orchard filled with deer and on the back end with peaks reaching 10,000 feet. Yeah, it's, I would argue there aren't other state hospitals that look this beautiful. I would just be surprised to find them. There are some great state hospitals. I think there are some beautiful locations. I really like what we have. Yeah, I, I think the one in Montana is in uh, outside of Butte, right? It's by the Anaconda area. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's in a pretty place, but I don't think it has quite the scenery this does. Uh, I, I think the Arizona State Hospital is in downtown Phoenix or Tucson, and apparently they have a beautiful campus, but it's it's surrounded by wire as opposed to guarded by an orchard filled with deer, right? Right. <laughs> Which right. is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Although we have had cougars and bear in that orchard. That is guard true. deer. We didn't mention their guard deer, so. Guard deer. Yeah, Watch guard out. deer. <laughs> no, not guard deer. Okay, let's talk about discharge. Walk us through the process of discharge. 
So for discharge here at the hospital, so before a patient um, is admitted to the hospital, we, we receive like a packet. And in that packet, there is discharge criteria and some very specific things that the mental health center mm -hmm. wants us as a treatment team to help the patient with. Now that list isn't always, you know, exhaustive. Sometimes there's things that pop up that uh, we need to work on, but that's kind of our our uh, marching orders. Is it is when we're building kind of their treatment plan? Is what does the mental health center want to see um, the patient kind of achieve so that they can get back out in the community? So once they come, we kind of work on those discharge criteria. We meet with the patient and the mental health center monthly to kind of go over that discharge criteria. So we're kind of all on the same page. So earlier we mentioned the liaison. Mm -hmm. That liaison is one that's part of uh, those meetings. Once the treatment team here at the state hospital and the treatment team from the mental health center, once we kind of talk and feel like that they have met that criteria uh, that the mental health center has put into place, we'll uh, coordinate you know, a, what we call like a trial leave period. Mm -hmm. Now before that trial leave, we help the patients get their social security back into place. Um, any uh, like social security disability, we get Medicare, Medicaid back into place. So basically all their benefits, we work on getting their ID, birth certificates, um, social security cards, basically any documents that they're going to need for when they get back out, back, back out into the community. And then, like I said, we kind of agree on a, a date and once all that stuff's placed, talk with the mental health center and they'll go back to um, the mental health center. A lot of times we call it like a like a step down unit. It's it's not like a state hospital, but it's a it's a building or a place that the mental health center owns where the patient goes and receives you know individual treatment, group treatment. Um, Dr. Andy will will work with the doctors there and to continue with the, you know their medications and mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. So I don't know if you have any. Yeah, I, I just. I thought, so Tim, earlier I mentioned that um, generally to get into the state hospital, you, you need to be disruptive with some sort of either so dangerous to yourself or so disruptive in society that you end up here, right, or some, some sort of danger to others, damaging property. Those are, those are kind of rough guidelines, I think. Um, and, and largely that's schizophrenia, but not entirely, right? Uh, sometimes you'll see people who are chronically suicidal that end up here. Uh, you'll see some patients m maybe somewhat more represented with borderline personality disorder uh, where the self-harming and the hospital, the emergency room visits are so frequent that it becomes unmanageable in the community. Um, and, and essentially to discharge, I think most of the criteria for discharge can, can be summarized into one thing, which is, is the problem that caused the disruption resolved? Mm. And can it stay that way? I think, I think that's kind of what it comes down to. And the insight piece, so our patients with schizophrenia really struggle recognizing that they have a mental illness most of the time. Our patients with bipolar disorder when they're manic struggle to recognize that they're manic quite often. 
And so if we can meet that criteria, excuse me, where somebody is able to be well enough to return to the community without disruption, the suicidality is gone. If it's, for example, borderline personality disorder, the parasuicidality, the self-injury, or if the person is able to recognize that they don't need to respond to those voices that were creating problems in the past, and to be able to stay in treatment in a way that they can continue to manage that, that's going to be where people leave. Now, there might be a lot of ways of writing those criteria down and specific components of that, but in my mind, that's almost always what it boils down to. Is the patient well enough to live in the community without disruption, and can they stay that way? And so I, I think, to me, that's kind of what it boils down to, and that's how, how you get out. And, and Corey's talking about, on some level, all of the nuts and bolts that go into that. It takes a lot of a lot of work to actually help somebody return to the community, right? Our patients struggle with uh, housing, shelter, mm -hmm. uh, where they can live, and so that transition often does happen through county mental health uh, settings. Um, but, but there's enough of a flow of patient movement that you have to be able to keep moving those patients forward from the transitional house to the community. And so all of those things, we need to place people on housing lists. Sometimes we place them months in advance on that housing list so that when they leave and go into the community, we're, we're ready to roll at that time, right? So, so lots of different pieces to help people be some, uh, successful in the community. And the county mental health system picks up almost all of that. And all we're trying to do is help with that timing. Um, what do we need to do to help you pick up the care in the community? And, and can you pick it up at this point based on these things? So lots of details. Thanks. So on the civil unit, like you said earlier, it comes down to how long does somebody need to be here? Not, there's no time frame set. It's just a needs base. When can, you know, whenever they meet those criteria and they are expected to continue to meet that criteria, then they can discharge and or begin the process of discharge because there's a lot of logistics that go into it. There are. Sometimes those logistics take a year to fall into place. And that, that's, we have a lot of heartburn about it because our understanding is that once our patients are well enough to leave, uh, heaven and earth are supposed to move to find the money to do that. That's, that's um, I think, what's required, and I think what actually comes into play is not always that perfect. Mm -hmm. I wish it were. Yeah. And and I, I think often that's everybody doing the best they know how. It's the illness that creates the challenges, yeah. not, not necessarily the people. I think it's shocking to some people. It could be shocking to some people um, from the outside looking in. Um, how long discharge can take. Um, but when you think about all of the logistics, just getting Medicaid or Medicare, uh, housing, you know, the variety of things that people have to have to be stable in the community can take a lot of time. Well, and kind of what you're describing and kind of what we've described is more of our traditional discharge that doesn't take into account, say somebody, we feel they need to go to a nursing home. Mm. So then you gotta, you know, there's a whole process to get somebody even accepted in a nursing home. And then once you get them accepted, finding a nursing home that would actually take them. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, DSPD, um, you know, working with folks with lower IQs. Like, you know, there's, there's, there's the kind of our traditional discharge. And then there's these other avenues that open all sorts of, mm. you know, challenges. Wow. So, yeah, talk to us about some of the common roadblocks blocks to discharge yeah so some of the some of the low-hanging fruit you know maybe let dr Ernie go into some of the 
more in-depth things, but some of the easy, the big ones that we see is uh, criminal charges. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Rani mentioned criminal charges are not required for them to come to the civil side, but a lot of our patients do. And Dr. Rani mentioned earlier that a lot of times patients cause some chaos in the communities the, and maybe the illness. The illness, yeah. We, we try to be good, fair. It's the, the illness the that does it. Yeah, chaos. chaos. Yes. Good catch. I, I, actually, I, I should have caught myself much sooner. Good. Yeah, I, that was me that made that mistake a lot earlier. That uh, the illness definitely does create caught of chaos, and so when the time comes to discharge, trying to find housing that, you know, hey, this person, you know, just set a fire in our apartment complex. Like, I don't know, we don't want him coming back or he yeah. or she or you know whatever and yeah. insurance will create that barrier yeah yeah so we don't run into it a, a ton but sometimes people being on um registered sex offenders and a lot of times the housing's close to schools or mm-hmm. other things so just the legal system in general you know creates quite a bit and and then also i would say we have a, a pretty good working relationships with the mental health centers but trying to not necessarily convince that's probably not the right word but is Dr. Annie the illness creates chaos and trying to help them see that, hey, the patient is done well enough that they're not going to create that chaos, you know, in the community. Yeah. Gaining so. that trust back, I'm sure, is difficult <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, and we try really hard to make sure that um, if we're telling a county, we think we see this, here's why, and we're, we're willing to back it up by taking the patient on trial leave if something goes wrong, bring them back, right? And, and there's kind of a window that we leave open for that to happen. And that's hard for everybody, um, but the counties feel like they're more supported with that kind of backstop. The other thing I think that's kind of a low-hanging fruit is sometimes funding doesn't fall into place. Sure. So there really doesn't exist funding for housing, even though technically most of our patients are homeless while they're here. Most don't have homes that they can go back to. Uh, either because the family of origin is chaotic or because they've, uh, the, the illness has created enough chaos to burn those bridges with family members. Um, and so um, finding a way to fund living can be difficult, and that's some of the lists that we talked about getting people on. And in addition to that, sometimes people have trust funds that they have set up, and so if they have any money sitting out there, the government... Uh, will want to take all of that before they're paying for services. And treatment of schizophrenia is incredibly expensive. Um, it's not uncommon for some of the long-acting injections. Uh, so once a month injection to cost north of $3,000 a month. And then if you add on tardive dyskinesia treatment, which is also uh, south of $4,000 a month, um, you're starting to be uh, $7,000 a month before you bring in human beings that are involved in helping to ensure that the medication is delivered, that it's taken mm-hmm. consistently, and those kinds of things. And give, we have to point out, too, that these medications are being given to someone who really can't hold down a job without the medications, and so it's this catch-22 right. that becomes really difficult. Right. Some of our patients with medication get well enough to hold down a job, and then they end up in some tough situations. I think what now happens in the community is we have some supported employment in many of the county mental health systems where they're kind of watching, hey, we can maintain work. At the moment, your illness costs too much to work more, but you can earn this much, and that's so amazing. Mm-hmm. Work, I think, is such a curative process. Um, but, but if we have people who have trust or have jobs or who have other things in play, or maybe even, I don't know, we might even have a family who 
hides money because they don't want the loved one to leave. I mean, there are all sorts of possibilities that could happen, right? So, so in theory, somebody could have a bank account. We know there's a bank account. We don't have a way to access all of the details of that bank account. And if we can't ever figure that out, it's really hard to get somebody into the community sometimes because they don't have the benefits. The county mental health system cannot uh, indefinitely fund all of the unfunded patients that fall into their system. It becomes kind of a challenge. I would just add a little little more detail to that. One of the things that pops up, Dr. Arnie mentioned, uh, patients needing to have like Medicaid, Medicare. So one of the requirements from Medicaid is that they have uh, less than $2,000 in an account. And so a lot of times uh, we'll go to get somebody ready to leave and uh, the state has little bit more in-depth system than we do they have ways that they can kind of check some accounts that we don't necessarily have access to and it'll say they'll flag a thing saying oh like this person had accounted you know wells fargo can you check that and we'll go check it and there's you know thirty five hundred dollars in there and they'll say okay yep sorry you don't qualify for medicaid which then doesn't allow them to get receive benefits into the community so then they kind of get stuck here and so it's it's uh it's one thing that we try and and catch early on in the process and to help them they call it a spin down try to help them get below that you know two thousand dollars but it happens more often than i would like <laughs> more often than we can we we try yeah. we do we try it, it's it's interesting too because sometimes the government will put us in that position i think there was a brief window where some of the patients depending on when they arrived at the state hospital got Correct. covid checks and some of those were COVID check exempt, some were not. And right. so we had some problems with COVID checks bumping people over and not being eligible for <laughs> benefits, even though they had a COVID check, so. Thank you, Uncle Sam, for giving me money and taking away a lot of helpful things. Yeah, yeah it was kind of a catch-22 as well. Huh. So are people ever forced to discharge prematurely? Yeah. And what are some of the consequences of that? Can you talk to us about that? Um, some of these are hard, right? I, I think I can talk about this without details. Um, every once in a while, the judge will let people go, and sometimes that is relatively inconsequential. So uh, we've had a patient or two that have been let go by the judge a handful of times and then just keep coming back. Uh, the judges finally kind of go, okay, this guy can tell a good story right now, or this gal can tell a good story right now. But I see it. So, so usually that works out. We did have one patient who, Corey, um, I don't know if you were here when, when, yeah. The judge basically told us, you're letting this guy go. And we kept saying, no, this, this, and by guy, it could be man or woman. It's just kind right. of a gender neutral statement. Go. The yeah. patient go. Um, and we said, no, if this patient goes, the patient will be dead. We, we know the patient will be dead. And the judge let him go anyway. And the patient was dead a month later, suicided within the month. And those are hard. Um, it, it's, it's also difficult because, um, in a sense, very few patients really end up dead when you let them go. We knew that when we were backed into a corner, we fought to get even an extra month out of the judge, right? It was a battle to get what we got. And uh, the courts rule, 
right? And I think you just have to know that in this field, first of all, probably more often we're going to keep people locked up longer than they should be. That's probably the reality, and we should probably have that way on our minds as much. And you're going to have times when patients are released by the judges, and that has to be okay. That's part of the rules of the game you're playing, and it still hurts. You want to be able to um, help everybody have a way to live happy, and 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 so that they wouldn't, you know, so that, so they can leave and be successful, even if the judge uh, lets people go. We, we do everything we can to try and set up a situation for success. I mean, we don't, we don't say, well, fine, if the judge lets you go, screw you. You're on your own now. It's, it's, we, we don't do that. Yeah. Yeah, of course we, we, we may not be able to provide all the wraparound services we would like, but we scramble to make everything happen. We invite people to stay long enough at the state hospital that, that we can set up a place for them to live when they leave. I mean, we do everything we can to try and have success. And even then, it's, it, it, it's not always successful, obviously. Wow. I'm just thinking how heavy that can be. That's just a really, um, has some sad <clears throat> consequences and yeah, that was not fun. We ended up going to like a death review, mm-hmm. and like I, I, I couldn't convey to the people listening that we had no, uh, we had no recourse in the situation. They're like, well, what could you have done differently? And we're like, nothing. The judge made the decision. Well, what could you have done differently in the community? Nothing. We worked out everything we could with the county. The county bent over backwards to try and make everything work. We put everything in place we knew how to play, put in place. Well, what do you think you could have done differently? Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. And so at the end of that, people were like, well, why didn't, why didn't you keep the commitment? Why did you let them go? And I said, the judge told us we had one month, and he was not going to, or she, I don't remember. The judge was, I think it was she at that time, yeah. And the judge told us, you got one month. Mm. It was a judicial release. Well, why didn't you fight that? We did, <laughs> right? Yeah. We did not have a choice. Well, why didn't you keep them committed? <laughs> yeah, <such a laughs> banging our heads at that painful point. Painful situation. It was difficult, but not uncommon. Not super, super uncommon. Uncommon. I would say uncommon. Yeah. Uncommon. Okay. Well, that's comforting. I think that. I know that there's been some work with the judges to try to help them um, understand kind of the mental health system mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, don't get me wrong, we've had times where, you know, even recently where a judge says, hey, like, this person looks pretty good, I'm going to give you 30 days, you know, we'll see how things go. But we haven't, we haven't had anybody released for quite a while. Most of the time good. with those 30 days we say, well, Judge, okay, we'll let them take over the treatment the way they plan when they leave. Yeah. And you can see them again in 30 days. And at 30 days, those they patients are not doing well, right? They decompensate. And, and they say, oh, th- this is what happens if we were to discharge. Okay, got it. Yeah. Um, and and um, I think it's also important to point out that um, we don't know the law in a way that the judges do. Right. And and they are doing a great job of trying to learn the, the mental health part of this to be better judges. So it's it's um, it's not their field, and I think they have decisions that are uh, judicially uh, made, not clinically made. Totally. And, uh, so so 
Um, I think we've been fortunate overall, the judges that we've worked with. Some of them have been amazing. Some of them came in very raw and learned very, very quickly, I think, how to how to, I think it's better to say they started seeing things more from our point of view over time. Whether that's right or wrong, I don't know, but that seems to happen even even if a new judge comes in determined to make sure that they're fair to everybody, right? They see pretty quickly that this is an enriched population. They're not, they're, we're, we're not just trying to commit people. We're, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's pretty hard to get here. Yeah, yeah. So thankfully not a common situation, but one time is probably too common. The one, it sounds like lots of changes maybe have happened from that. Or I, I don't think you can always stay ahead of the changes, and the judge might have made the right decision from the, from the judicial bench judicial, viewpoint, yeah. right? It, it's something that um, all, all I know is I didn't know how to change the situation very well. I might do something different now compared to then, right? I might have a different approach. I might be better at it now. And I think that's all you can do when things are out of your hands is you figure out, okay, what could I have done maybe differently? Mm-hmm. And I think another another interesting point is it's really hard to get into the state hospital. I don't know that we've mentioned that yet. Yeah. But I think there, there might be a belief, maybe this is one of the misconceptions, there might be a belief out there well, anybody could get thrown into the state hospital. Their their rights would be lost. I mean, I think you've walked on the units, and it's pretty easy to see that the patients that ended up here are remarkably affected by schizophrenia. It, it's easy to see in everybody that's here. It's not like there's really any patients that you see and you go, oh, well, I, I don't know if they should really be here, <laughs> right? <laughs> Never have I met someone on the unit that I thought they should yeah. here. Maybe well enough to leave. Yeah, they're getting there. Yeah, people are like, oh, yeah. wow, they've made a lot of improvements. Yeah, but but not exactly like, oh, wow, that how did that person get here? It's, it's never and I hope that we've conveyed through this podcast that there are a lot of steps to admission, and those steps also require a temporal perspective as well. So it takes yeah. time and... It's not easy to get here. You have to have severe illness, and there are a lot of steps you, that have to You really first. have to create enough chaos that the county says, <laughs> I just, the, the illness has to create enough chaos that the, yeah. the county finally just says, we, we can't do this more. And, and it's the counties manage incredibly ill people who are incredibly affected by psychosis, and they do an amazing job of it, and it's hard to do. And to have them throw their hands up in the air, so to speak, and say, okay, this is going to get one of our precious beds because they they do see them that way. Mm -hmm. It it takes a lot. Yeah. And then you have to have a judge sign off on it. So Right. So if there is one step in the process to discharge that you could improve right now, what would that be? Probably quite a few. Um, I think we're always looking to how do we better help. Um, Like one thing that I always worry about is I feel like we do a pretty good job of treating the patients here, but how do we obtain more long-term success? And Dr. Arnie's mentioned, like, schizophrenia, it's, it's hard. Like, it's, it's kind of a lifelong, you know, battle. But, you know, what can I do as a clinician, as an administrator here, to kind of help patients long-term? Um, is that, you know, sending our clinicians and and people to you know trainings to know how to you know do better i think that's one thing that we dr ronnie's been super uh what's the word it's better more than nice he's been 
it's been awesome as far as like helping us get training and, and trying to get us you know books to read to kind of know kind of the latest and greatest um, interventions to help in the patients and so I think for me that's I always want to just try to figure out how I can prove myself to help you know patients kind of in therapy and that kind of stuff to have better long-term long-term outcomes, outcomes. I see. yeah yeah, I think there's there's something that we talk about a little bit, which is you can get somebody to have fewer voice, fewer voices, but that doesn't seem to be a recovery. The recovery really is something very different than that. It's it's illness management, and that doesn't happen just because you put a medication on somebody. And so one of the things I've worked on, of, I think, over the last 15 years I've been here, is trying to have a better understanding of the therapeutic component of it, so that so that when I'm working with my patients, I'm not going crosswise of what will help the patients recover in the long run, right, to manage the illness over the long run. And, and I think that's something that is an ongoing process. I think the other thing that's really important is um, changing, the, one of the hardest things I deal with, I think, is if I have a patient that's reasonably well, but not really great, and maybe they could go out and struggle with schizophrenia the rest of their life. Is that enough? Or do I swing for the fences and hope that we can dramatically change somebody's lives? Mm-hmm. And swinging for the fences has had some great things happen. I, I think there's a time we were all in tears when we had somebody who had a son they loved more than words express tell us that because of their time here, they now had hope. And that they had hope because if their son developed schizophrenia, then there would be treatment, it would be okay, right? And that was swinging for the fences. That was somebody that we were deciding whether we we sent that person out well enough on a long-acting injection because that person had struggled to stay well and maybe a long-acting injection would be enough, but he wasn't well on the long-acting injection. And then we started clozapine, hoping that he could stick with it, and he got well enough. This person did that he was able to stick with it and be well and have hope. And, And the flip side of that is sometimes you go for more, and the person never comes back to what they were. You never get back what you had, and then it's worse and it's chaotic and it's hard on the unit and people get hit and psych techs quit. And so there's always that, how much do you reach for in the back of my mind and how soon do you reach for it? And if I could get better at picking the medication, which I don't think I can, I think that's a random thing. I try to play the numbers the best I know how based on NNTs. Um, Or if I can get better at knowing when to switch and how to switch, which might be more possible, and I'm always working on that, um, then maybe maybe patients will spend less of their time here and have a better recovery. And those are the things I work on. And, And I think if I could get that better, I could get patients out sooner. And that's not an easy kind of thing. That's a hard thing to have patients decompensate and get worse. And it's hard to see patients stay here a long time. And then you finally kind of budge and then then suddenly something great happens and you go, why didn't I just try that sooner? Why didn't I just do it sooner? And then you have one that goes off the rails and it's screaming at you and hits everybody. And you go, why did I do that? Why wasn't I more patient? Why didn't I do that? You know, it, it, there's a lot of ways to have recrimination about the decisions you make. Yeah. Bottom line, a really tough job. Really tough job. I would, uh, would you be good? 
I would just add add one more. So one of the one of the things that I get to do um, with my current job is work with law enforcement, where they come here to the state hospital and kind of teach them about mental health. Mm. And it's like one of the I find a ton of satisfaction in in doing it. And so I think one thing that I'd like to try to get better at is um, we kind of have a motto here on the unit of you know hope lives here, and just trying to help people understand that you know even though there's mental health and stuff and there's a ton of negatives with it that there truly can be you know hope that just because somebody has this mental health thing and and helping society understand that people with mental health they're not all bad Mm -hmm. that there truly is a lot of amazing outcomes and you know Dr. Honey shared one earlier of a person that was here and his son and it's been pretty awesome the 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 wins feel amazing, yeah. and the losses hurt like you can't imagine. Yeah, I'm sure you can imagine, but the losses hurt, yeah. and we have too many of those. True. Well, this podcast has been um, extremely insightful, and I hope it's been insightful for everyone else. I've learned a lot and had some things cleared up in my mind. So thank you. Uh, any last parting words? Just glad you uh, came back for a fourth, uh, I guess, fourth year rotation, second rotation um, with us. We always enjoyed working with you, and thanks for inviting me on the podcast. Yeah, definitely. We're hoping you'll join join us for another one next week, I think, is when we have that planned. And I think, what, what is the topic going to be, Tim? I, um, I, I think we're talking about uh, voices, sort of the voices, profiles, and schizophrenia. Corey is the king at that. He understands voices profile better than anybody I think that I that I know. Uh-huh. Uh, of course, I, I if I didn't mention already, I think Corey is an unbelievably gifted therapist. I would say the most gifted therapist I know. Um, he he rolls his eyes at that and does all <laughs> sorts of crazy stuff about that. But very nice of you. I appreciate but it. unbelievably talented and. Uh, his ability to talk about the nuts and bolts of schizophrenia and how it plays out in a person is really, um, really remarkable to me and I think worth, worth listening to. So hopefully I'll join us for the next podcast. And my take home is uh, th- this is an amazing place to work and I think it, there are many times that I, be, because I, th- I think these patients deserve something special, Periodically, I check myself and say, am I doing enough? Am I working hard enough for my patients? Am I doing the right thing? Am I what the patients deserve? And sometimes I feel like I find myself lacking and try to increase my effort again so that I am what they deserve. And and I sincerely hope that if the time comes that I'm not that person, that I can step away so that the patients can have somebody. We have a cadre of physicians here that are unbelievable right now that care so deeply about patient outcomes and patients it's, it's just such a rewarding place to work. And, and one other thing that maybe I would note, and, and I don't know if this is true of all state hospitals, uh, this state hospital is filled with, um, like, like no, nobody would ever say, this is people that couldn't get jobs anywhere else. We have physicians who went to top tier residencies around the country and came back to the Utah State Hospital because this is the population they love working with and this is the place they want to be. And that is 
unique, right? We have uh, Ivy League graduates, we have uh, a UNC guy, we got a Baylor grad here. I mean, we have all sorts of people that are incredibly talented. We have an Emory graduate who is an MDJD, right? These are all residency programs that are among the most highly um, respected programs in the country in the field. And we are filled with those guys and gals, right? It's, it's just an unbelievable place that has a lot of talent. And I, I don't think you just bump into a place like that, right? Yeah. Um, I think uh, we're very, very fortunate to have the skilled people here that we have and really enjoy working here. And that's kind of my, my last note. Thank you. I also just say thank you for you know having me on the podcast and thank you for having me back for another rotation. Um, I'm planning on being a surgeon someday, and so, you know, it's maybe not so obvious why I'd want to come back and do a psych rotation, but I feel like I've become a better student and eventually a better provider by learning from all of you and um, experiencing these things. We all run into mental illness. Uh, everyone listening to this podcast will run into mental illness, and especially medical students who will be physicians someday. We will run into mental illness, and I think it's a really good skill to have to understand how to handle those situations when they come. So, I forget how you end these podcasts. On that note? On that note? Team out. Team out, guys. <laughs>